Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Breaking the Rules. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Corals, also the popular New Weeks Medicine Podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, Robert Pearl. MD.com. Our guest today is Dr. Abraham Verghese. He's a physician, author of four best-selling books, professor of theory and practice of medicine, and vice chair of education at the Stanford University Medical School. His most recent book, The Covenant of Water, is already number three on the New York Times bestseller list and was chosen by Oprah Winfrey as her most recent book of the month. Good morning, Abraham, and welcome to Fixing Healthcare. What a pleasure to be with you, truly. Thank you for having me. Abraham, you are a beautiful writer. When I read your books, I never know if I'm reading prose or poetry. Your first book, Cutting for Stone, was in the New York Times bestseller list for, I think, something like 100 weeks, and I'm confident the Covenant of Water will be just as successful. Let me start by pointing out, you are a Nobel Prize-level author, and I am a writer, the equivalent of a first-year medical student. But we do share one thing in common, we both dedicated our most recent books to our mothers. Why did you do this? Well, first of all, let me just push back. I think that comparison is, is not a valid one. I think your writing is very clear and reaching so many people and really changing, changing, the, cor- changing the course of this healthcare you know, ship that we're all on. Yeah, my mother, in my case, the, my mother was... Um, you know, I think inspirational in setting this book in Kerala, in India. I think geography is a major decision when you write a novel. It's a, it's a, it's like a character because geography, you know, sets everything in place. If you set a, a novel in Pasadena versus you set it in the south of India, it has a completely different character. And my mother had left behind a wonderful document she'd written for her niece, for my niece, her grandchild. Uh, who had asked what it was like when she was a little girl. And my mother's, you know, compilation of anecdotes with her sketches in there was a was a reminder to me of the rich community from which we come from, a community I didn't know as well as I might if I had been born there. I was born in Africa where my parents were teachers, but nevertheless had, you know, pretty good fam- familiarity with the setting. So I dedicated to my mother for all those reasons and because she just passed away during the writing of the book. So it seemed terribly important. If I'm not mistaken, a covenant is a contract or treaty between people or in a biblical sense with God. Why did you choose the word covenant rather than something like fear or love of water as the title? Yeah, I, I have a thesis completely unvalidated that titles need to be a bit mysterious and that, uh, you know, I think the, the nature of a novel is that the writer provides their words, the reader provides their imagination, and somewhere in middle space, this this mental movie takes place, takes shape in the reader's mind. 
And every reader has their own, you know, take on this mental movie. They make their own movie. Similarly, I think the title resonates for people in different ways. And whenever people ask me to explain the title, I don't really have the, the key to it. I like the word covenant because it's an old-fashioned biblical term. It has a certain resonance to it, as you pointed out. And water was inescapable because Kerala is a land of rivers and backwaters and lagoons and a latticework of, of water that connects everybody. Uh, but in the context of this novel, there was also about a condition, as they call it, in the 1900s, that affects every uh, generation of this family, one or more members, has a problem with water, where they lose their bearings underwater, they're discombobulated by water. And so there's a covenant to keep this secret, because it really affects the marital prospects of the family. And so hence uh, the word covenant. So you talk about this strange affliction that spans three generations. And I, I think in total there were seven deaths, if I counted right, in your book. Um, and as you said, they refer to it as the condition. They never really acknowledged the word drowning. I've heard cancer patients use similar abstract language about their condition. You see it connected? Why do you think it's so? You think we need to make some changes about it to be able to make it more visible and more, I'll say, acceptable to discuss? How, how, do, you, how do you envision all this in comparison to the rest of medicine and other conditions? Well, I actually think that, um, you know, one of the reasons I decided to set this book between the years 1900 and 1977 is we've had so many entities, conditions, whatever you like to call them, for which the best we could do was have this description. And then the, the wonderful thing is to watch over 70 years as the biological basis was unraveled, treatment described, and now we have a completely new understanding. So uh, I've always loved that, that sort of unfolding of medicine that makes what was known in a very crude way 100 years ago into something very discreet. A great example that I share with my students and will perhaps uh, be interesting to your listeners there was a condition years ago called acoluric jaundice. Uh, jaundice was very well described, and everyone knew that it turned the urine deep yellow. But there was a variety of jaundice that ran in families that did not turn the urine deep yellow. And now with our, with our knowledge, we know that they were talking about hereditary spherocytosis. And this was hemolysis running in families you know, so that's a great example to me of what would have been to them a condition, but over the sweep of centuries or generations becomes much more. Um, so I, I was just playing with that. I really wasn't getting more uh, deeper into issues of why people name diseases as they do. But um, cancer is a very loaded word, and I, that hadn't that analogy hadn't crossed my mind until you mentioned this. That makes me think of the fact that throughout your book, you write about the theme of stigma, whether you're, you're discussing the caste system, individuals with leprosy, illicit sexual relationships. What is so powerful about this theme? How do you envision stigma? Do we need to get rid of it? What are your thoughts? This seems, sounds like, seems like a really important uh, issue that you write about and think about. Yeah, I think, you know, stigma of disease or the, the, the negative metaphors of diseases are 
very related to associations of caste. You know, uh, caste is well known in India, the high caste Brahmins, the lowest caste uh, uh, people, and, and their complicated social interactions. But nobody's immune from caste. We're all, you know, in America, we have our own caste system as evidenced by the disparities in healthcare when we look at, you know, how, how much of those disparities are race-based. So I think I was getting at, um, you know, so I think I was just, I never have an agenda. I'm never proselytizing or trying to sort of make a point, but it's it's hard to write about disease. It's hard to write about that era, especially in, in, in India, without bringing up, you know, that one disease, especially leprosy, where it's such a stigma that we've adopted the word into our language to mean stigma. You know, we talk about so-and-so being treated as a, as a leper. You know, we've actually taken the disease and changed it from a noun into an adjective or, uh, or a modifier. So I think that's all I was getting at. But it does fascinate me. I mean, if you think about it, the, the metaphor that goes along with leprosy, with cancer, with tuberculosis, uh, well written about by by Susan Sontag, you know, how, why is the tuberculosis metaphor one of, you know, excessive romantic passion like Keats or some of the other poets who died young of uh, Chekhov? And why is cancer viewed as a metaphor of, you know, somehow of weakness or personal failure, you know? Now with leprosy, it's really very complicated because these patients are horrendous to look at sometimes on the outside. And uh, yet their soul, who they were, is intact to a point. Over time, clearly, this the, the way they, the society treats them turns them into very bizarre people. You point out again and again how people have to hide, hide this affliction that transcends generations, do their best to hide leprosy. As you know, I've done leprosy surgery in Samoa. And one of the biggest operations people desire is to have their eyebrows rebuilt because that is the first, one of the early stigma of uh, the disease there. Certainly people hiding illicit sexual relationships. Th this hiding in society, is, is this just the nature of human existence? Is there something specific that you see in the characters of your book? How do you perceive this, this need for secrecy? Well, I think... Um... In India, you know, in almost any society within India, but especially within our community where you have a, a community of Christians who trace their religion back to 52 AD when St. Thomas landed on the shores of Kerala and who therefore intermarry in order to preserve their society. In such a community with arranged marriages, reputation is everything. And so it doesn't take much for a girl's reputation to be torpedoed by, uh, you know, some revelation of a true family uh, disease or sometimes maliciously. Oh, they have a history of mental illness in the family. Oh, they have a history of, you know, of fits or epilepsy. Um, and so as a child visiting, I would always be impressed by how much discussion took place around reputation and stigma. But, you know, we're not spared this, uh, as you pointed out. I mean, the burden of being gay in America for the longest time was, uh, you know, was how society would view it, which is why the metaphor of HIV was so powerfully one of, you know, of shame and secrecy. It was entwined with the burden of 
being gay in a society that did not welcome it. Nowadays, it seems almost hard to describe these things to my young trainees. It's hard for them to visualize just how bad it could have been, you know. But I think stigma is everywhere. Abraham, early in the book, the matriarch of the family, who you called Bigomachi, discovers that she's pregnant, something she's desired, and she lies in bed cradled in her husband's huge arms, his big body, uh, and she thinks, quote, happened is happened, the past is unreliable, only the future is certain. Most people would say the opposite. Has this inverse relationship between certain of the future versus the past been your personal experience? How did you come up with this concept? It seems so uh, non-intuitive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what uh, what I'm getting at, I mean, I like the fact that it sounds so paradoxical. I think that's why I latched onto it. And I don't know that it's an original idea. I think I read it somewhere and uh, just loved the idea of it. Maybe not in those exact words, but, you know, but if you think about it, the past, as reported by us, is totally unreliable. I mean, just witness, you know, how we as a society in America are fractured by our idea of what happened in the past election. You know, it just completely has ruptured the country. Uh, there may be facts, but there are clearly the way we view the facts. So the past is completely unreliable. And only the future, in the sense of the future will evolve, as it's going to evolve, is, is pretty certain. I think that's also true in families where, you know, we, we, we make up our convenient stories of the past. They don't necessarily represent what actually happened. It's very interesting to talk to different relatives and get your family history, and you're going to get 10 different family histories. I'm very much struck by how often we'll have two truths or two dichotomies. We'll have uh, fiction versus nonfiction. I can't quite tell whether you see your book as fictionalized or nonfiction. As you point out, if we see nonfiction as being unreliable, maybe fiction is just more reliable. You've written both nonfiction and fiction. How do you compare them? How do you think about them? How do you see this line brightly dividing the two in theory? And in my experience, in my view, often being blurred in practice. Wow, that's a really intriguing question. I mean, so if we get to a very practical level as writers, which you are and I am, you know, uh, I think there's an important distinction between fiction and nonfiction. So uh, for one thing, nonfiction outsells fiction, I'm told, five or 10 to one. You know, nonfiction is enormously more easy to sell to publishers and for publishers to sell. And the reason for that is if something really happened, we as readers have an inherent interest in it that's much greater than a made-up story. So, for example, if I made up a story about a young African-American kid who excels in college football, then wins the Heisman Trophy, goes to a so-so team, then goes to Hollywood, stars in some movies, marries a beautiful blonde woman, has two children, becomes estranged from her, murders her in the driveway of her Brentwood home, takes off in a chase in a white Bronco down the freeway, is acquitted because the glove doesn't fit. You know, as fiction, that's a tawdry story. But because it really happened, look how many books spun out of that, you know. So I think there's that very practical distinction. But I think what you're asking is a 
sort of a meta question is, you know, uh, how much of the nonfiction out there is truly based on real events? And I think the rules of nonfiction are generally that, you know, the contract with the reader is this really happened. You're allowed to dramatize, rearrange. You're not really allowed to invent. Uh, whereas the rules of fiction are, you can do anything you like. Um, you know, one thing that, that you, the biggest distinction I think between fiction and nonfiction is you have to work 10 times as hard in the first pages to get the reader to suspend this their disbelief, to get over this notion, well, I'm reading a made up story. And once you do that, you can't let them down for the next hundred of pa- hundreds of pages that you that you have there. So it's a much more effortful, conscious thing to keep the reader engaged. You can't count on the subject to do it for you. You really have to do the hard work. And uh, I think to that end, um, you know, they're very, very different skills. And uh, I've I've enjoyed writing nonfiction, but I have enjoyed writing fiction a lot more because it's liberating. You can really you know, I can get into the characters' heads. I can get into, I can go across the divide between life and death and report back from the dead world. You know, you can do anything you want with, with fiction. So when you write a piece of fiction versus nonfiction, uh, do you ever feel that due to your profession and reputation in the medical field that there is more pressure on you to write nonfiction? Um and how do you use your own personal experiences and the experiences of people you've known in real life to inspire and shape your work? Uh, do you kind of keep a lookout for inspiration from others as you live your daily life? Or how do you find that inspiration for your work? You know, I haven't been writing much nonfiction of late, um, other than book reviews and things like that. I mean, I, I when I did write my first two nonfiction books, uh, My Own Country and The Tennis Partner, I found it, you know... Um, I learned a lot by writing nonfiction. I had not set out to write nonfiction, so I learned a lot writing nonfiction. The style of my writing was very much where I became a character in the novel, in the nonfiction, reluctantly. You know, I couldn't get the camera so close onto people's lives. You know, a small town in Tennessee with HIV or my best friend who was an intravenous drug addict. I couldn't turn the lens on them so closely and then when it swung around to me put it put down a blank uh, put on a screen so I wound up being more confessional than I wanted I mean I don't really feel bad about it looking back but I feel like if the reader has done me the honor of reading the book preferably buying the book not borrowing it then they've earned the right to know these things about me but the process felt much harder I think than writing fiction which can actually be even more revealing but in a different sort of way um so i found it hard also with nonfiction, especially more so these days you really have to be conscious of what you can use what you can't use permissions and so on and it's uh, become a more complicated business than when i first started out writing about the covenant of water You've used the phrase that it's filled with love and faith, and like all families, it has secrets. It struck me that this is equally true of medicine. What are your thoughts, and can you give listeners maybe a couple of examples? Yeah, I think you would agree with me that, you know, medicine is nothing but life plus plus, you know? Medicine is really everyday life on steroids, uh, life at its most acute, life at its most 
uh, you know, momentous occasions, uh, life-threatening occasions. And so, um, you know, there is often around that issues of secrecy, issues of trust. But I've been impressed over the years that, you know, that oftentimes a secret, especially when a family is trying to keep from others, becomes their bond. And it's a bond that's greater than blood. It's the thing that keeps them together. And when that secret is finally revealed, it can actually be tremendously disruptive, or it can be the one thing that finally heals them all. Uh, Tolstoy, I think, said something similar. He said, uh, happy families are all alike, but unhappy families are, 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 you know, are unhappy in unique ways. And, you know, I think that's true in medicine. It's, it's a paraphrase of William Osler's, you know, it doesn't matter what disease the patient has, it matters what what patient has the disease, you know. So we're all unique in that sense. Abraham, you're a skilled clinician. You teach the art of physical examination at Stanford to medical students. I've been told my brother, who's the chief of anesthesia, that you're the best clinician in the hospital. Uh, I've heard you lecture about the intimacy of the doctor's touch and the power of observation. And listening to you, it seems like these are the same skills possessed by great writers of fiction. How do you see these two aspects of your life, medicine and writing, connecting? How do you transition from the bedside to authorship and back? Yeah, first of all, let me push back and say I'm by far not the best clinician in the house by any means. I diagnostician. He said diagnostician, yes. No, not even diagnostician. <laughs> I think to be those things, you have to be doing this very, very often. And I attend, you know, in one week blocks episodically. So uh, I think I was at my peak skills and maybe you'll feel the same way when I was sort of a mid-career attending, doing a lot of attending. Uh, that is the point where, you know, I think I felt I was at my best. Um, and one more aside, I think that these days when I bring some something to the bedside, it's very rare that I bring some body of knowledge that solves this case in front of me. Usually it's, if I'm doing anything different, it's that I'm hearing something in the story that, you know, that sort of matches my repertoire of stories, which are perhaps longer and deeper than that of the house staff or something in the story echoes some previous episode that I have tucked away. But that's so that's that's getting away from your question. I do think that um, all the skills of, of medicine, and you're a case in point, Robbie, if I may, you know, you're a case in point, you brought all your wonderful skills as a, as a, uh, as someone who's observing and running a big healthcare system, and a clinician and surgeon, you're bringing all those to bear in your, your own writing and your columns and your podcast. So I think, you know, I, I find that people want to give me a, a writer's hat and a doctor's hat, but really the gaze is the same. We're looking at the lens through this gaze of clinicians who are used to, you know, making uh, objective assessments and trying to pull all the facts together using Occam's razor to make a whole. So I would say that uh, very much the clinical skills at the bedside, reading the body, as I like to tell the students, we have to learn to read the body. It's exactly what I'm trying to do in writing. I'm trying to read the character that I'm trying to construct and doing so by putting together telling details that make this person believable to the point where they start to dictate to me what they're going to do. You know? Like the covenant of water, 
many books and movies span three generations. And as I think about it, I think you covered about 70 years in the book. It's the perfect amount of time for everything, including technology, culture, knowledge, relationships to change, yet to remain connected. How did you pick this arc? Why not pick a longer or a shorter time period? What was your thinking in choosing three generations? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I've always been drawn to books that have a large sweep of time. You know, if if a book, and I think books are this way, fiction is, as they say, the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. And fiction is also instructive. So if fiction is going to be instructive, I think you need a large sweep of time. Now, you know, that's not always the case. I mean, you can point to... Um, Catcher in the Rye, and you don't need a large sweep of time for that. You're, it's a short sweep of time. But I've been drawn to books that play out over generations. I think they offer potent lessons. Uh, you you feel an echo in you because you have a sense these things are true, but you're also feeling that you're being instructed. You're being sort of pointed to your own future. So uh, I think three generations is enough time for a disease, which I kind of had at the outset, to be able to manifest and play out and for you to make some observations about the disease over time, about the condition. So for all those reasons, um, but you know, honestly, I think the most important reason would be I've loved this aspect of the novel that as far as I know, a novel is the only instrument that buys you time in this world. You know, you can pick up a novel and start reading and pretty soon you're living through several generations and centuries and you put it down and it's Tuesday. And what other instrument can offer that to, to you? So I love reading those kinds of novels. I love um, writing those kinds of novels. And I think they're they're important. I, I get impatient with my colleagues, people unlike you, Ravi, who are, you know, oh, I'm a serious kind of guy. I used to run Kaiser. I'm only going to read, you know, nonfiction and biography. And it really speaks so well of, of you and many of the powerful leaders I know that you all read fiction because I think there's a part of the brain, there's a part of the cortex that stays alive by taking these little signals we call words on the page and making our mental movies. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm thrilled that I should be on this podcast with you talking about my novel. It actually says much more about you and uh, who you are and your agenda than it does about me. You know, a lot changes in society, politics, technology, et cetera, over the course of three generations. How do you keep track of the small world building details when writing a book like this so that you never break the immersion by having the wrong technology, political climate, societal issues, et cetera, during the wrong time period? Uh, when you have a, a book that spans such a long time period, uh, but still set in a realistic setting. Yeah, I had to be you know, pretty careful. So a lot of research, but I actually had uh, three or four columns in a spreadsheet. One was just medical milestones. One was local Kerala, political and other milestones. One was, you know, the world historical milestones and making sure they all match up. And sometimes there were some surprises to me about, for example, how early something had happened that I thought was a much later event and, and vice versa. So, I mean, I'm sure there's a few things there that I'm going to be uh, told by readers that I got wrong. But for the most part, I was trying very carefully to keep everything together. 
We also was trying very hard not to get into long expositions about history and make the history and the reality of the time come alive through the lives of the characters and their actual experiences. Uh, let me ask you, Abraham, in my family, uh, although the men like myself, my brother have been successful, the women have really been even more successful than the men for three generations, actually now on four generations. I think in your book, the women are the more powerful of each of the three generations. Was this by chance, a one-day chance, given it could be 50-50 in each of the three generations? Or was this an intent in your writing? Yeah, I think it was pretty intentional. I mean, I, I, uh, I have read, and you probably have too, many a novel where, you know, the mother is always depicted as evil or flawed, or, you know, there's always some catch to the mother, you know, and as I thought back to, you know, not just my mother, but my grandmother, especially, and my great-grandmother, from what I knew of them, these were, you know, souls who lived quiet, simple existences, confined to one compound, largely, their whole lives, and the world would never know about them. And yet these were heroic existences, given the kinds of things that they had to live through, the tragedies and the kinds of inspiration that they that they were to their children, their, their recognition that their daughters and sons had to take advantage of the opportunities that were never open for them, you know, and then making sure that they were able to do that. So, I mean, my mother also, I mean, my mother graduated, was born in the mid-1920s, graduated from India with a master's in physics, just as India was becoming independent from Britain, there weren't any jobs available. She answered an ad for a teaching position in Ethiopia and went there sight and seen. Can you imagine this? A young woman in a sari getting on a steamship to go to Aden in, in the post-World War II moment. And, um, you know, so in their own ways, they were incredibly brave. And, you know, not many people would know my mother's journey or that you know, after teaching there for 30 years, she would land up in, you know, Springfield, New Jersey and teach junior high school. Again, in Asari, beloved by her students, almost, you know, uh, legendary for for being able to teach physics and be so loved. Uh, and then finally, you know, settle in Florida. That kind of an arc of a life is something that I felt needed to be celebrated. I love it. Uh, my grandma also went to college, which was unheard of in her time. Uh, the depression got in the way after that, so she had to drop out to support, help support her family. Uh, she ended up at the age, I think, of 85 or 86, running like 18 garages in New York City. Yeah, that, that was an amazing time and an amazing generation, and you and I are both fortunate to have had the mothers and grandmothers that, uh, that we did. Indeed we are. Uh, the next season of Fixing Healthcare is going to be about end of life and the fear of loss. And in your book, early in the life of Bigamachi, the section that I found just so moving and brought tears to my eyes, she's lying next to her husband. He's 28 years older than she is. And she pleads silently, as you write, never grow old, never die. The depth, the richness of all of that. As a medical profession, though, how do we help people accept the unavoidable? Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, it's interesting. As I've been touring with this book in the last few weeks, I I get a lot of people say, I love your work, but I wish you wouldn't have so much 
of death in it. And I, and I keep saying, you know, uh, this is not something I'm making up. You know, life is a terminal condition. You know, we don't really have a choice about that. But it's also an accurate reflection of the time. You know, on my mother's side, she remembers her younger brother when she was um, 12. He was nine. Uh, someone she really loved dying of typhoid fever. On my father's side, my father as a young boy remembers his older brother, who must have been 14, being bitten by a dog. And then a month later, you know, uh, becoming very ill and being rushed to a hospital and then being brought back because they couldn't do anything for him and basically dying of rabies. So uh, these were not uncommon events for families to experience this kind of tragedy. And I think in America, we're, we're so blessed with our longevity and, you know, largely... Our, our good health and good healthcare system, an expensive broken one, but nonetheless a good one, that we don't, uh, I sometimes think we're in denial of our own mortality. And, you know, there's always a shock, especially in the hospital when children arrive at their parents' bedside, often from far away. And, you know, they, they come with this, sometimes with an indignation that this should be happening, you know? And it's a little hard to explain. It's human nature though, you know? It's human nature that we're in denial of our, our own mortality. Abraham, as one might imagine, multiple doctors fill the pages of this uh, magnificent book. Just to whet the appetite of listeners, can you introduce them to one of these physicians? Yeah, I mean, I have many different clinicians in, in the book. But again, staying true to the times, uh, in the period 1900 to 1945, you would have had uh, many foreign physicians from the UK and elsewhere, both working there, but also in the medical schools, uh, working alongside or training the uh, local physicians. So I have a one physician from uh, Glasgow, uh, Digby, who is actually, uh, you know, ostracized in Glasgow for his religion, being a Catholic and, you know, being put down there and comes to India, and ironically, he's now the highest of the high caste, you know. Um, I have a Swedish surgeon who winds up being uh, in a leprosy hospital. And then, of course, I have the Indians, uh, the main family characters, also one of them becoming a physician. So, yeah, it's been a delight to uh, have my, my cast of characters be medical folks. And, you know, I'm a, not a surgeon, and so it's been particularly delightful for me to learn from people like you and my colleagues about surgical, you know, things that I bring up in the book. I think uh, surgery is inherently dramatic, and so it's fun to to bring those kinds of scenarios into a book for, for the reader. One of your characters is an elephant, Damo, and you say that he's happiest when he's working. Were you thinking about doctors? <laughs> um no, I wasn't, but uh, uh, I'm going to turn this question to you. What made you think of doctors? <laughs> I know quite a number of physicians who, at least before now, now burnout is, as you know, very rampant, and there are a lot of issues going on. But certainly, uh, I think of my uncle, who was a surgeon who worked uh, seven days a week, and he was the happiest when he was working, when he was in the operating room, when he was taking care of patients, when he was in his office. He, he, he's never been uh, smiling more than in those moments of helping people to become better. So it made me think about medicine, whether it's a nostalgic sense or a true sense, I can't say. Unfortunately, far less frequent today. It has to do with purpose, 
but I was uh, just struck how that character really played an, an oversized impact in the book, considering you could have left him out completely and probably not lost very much, but he brought so much more to uh, both the memory and the visualization of it. That's, that, that's what made me think about his role when he just felt good making things happen, creating things, working with other individuals, the kinds of skills that I wish we had more of in medicine today. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. I mean, one of the themes that runs through the book, and again, I don't start off writing saying, well, I'm going to put this theme forward, you know, which is why it's so frustrating in English literature classes when you're asked to explore the theme of the book. I mean, it's not invalid, but it's not a theme that the writer necessarily, you know, consciously explored. But this was one, once I recognized it, there's a line in the book where one surgeon says to the other, quoting a line in the Bible, whatsoever thy hand findest to do, do it with all thy might, for there is no knowledge or succor or or joy in the grave. I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, the sense that it is using these gifts we have that makes our life fulfilled. And, you know, you can look for a meta understanding or you can look for the understanding of just putting one foot forward and, you know, going on whatsoever thy hand find us to do. And uh, the elephant character was interesting because I think we do d definitely anthropomorphize our, our animal characters. And especially with elephants as a child, I've always been struck by how very human their eye was. They, and then their movements were like a slowed down version of ourselves. You, you saw something of yourself in that elephant. So it was a lot of fun to bring that character into the book. This season of Fixing Healthcare is about leadership. And many leaders fill your book, Bigomachi, Shamul, Uplift Master. What do they teach us? Hmm, I would never have uh, made that connection of you. Again, I'm going to ask you to tell me what you think they teach us. I never consciously uh, saw it that way. I, I mean, my own sense is that I think of Bigomachi as a very noble character, a leader, if you like. And it comes out of this genuine, uh, I mean, a, a strong sense of faith. The core values that she has are very, very strong. Uh, they're not debatable. She knows what they are. That always helps. Uh, but honestly, I had not thought in, in those terms. So now you tell me what you saw in that. Because I think of you as the epi epitome of leadership, someone who's been there. I, I mentioned the three names because to me, they led by different forms. Amachi, to me, led by love. She had love for her child. She had love for her family. She had love for her religion. Shamul led, by, led out of uh, purpose, out of uh, commitment, out of obligation. Uh, couldn't be more dedicated, led by example. People would choose to follow Shamul because of his, his who he was as much as because of what he did for them. And Uplift Master to me was, how do you navigate through a broken society, a broken culture? How do you figure it out without becoming uh, so angry that you can't make things happen? How do you understand how to have victories? So I think in many ways, if you combined all three of them, you have the perfect nature of leadership. It's someone who leads out of the positive, out of the love, someone who leads out of the example and someone who knows how to get things done despite the size of the hill and the, and the magnitude of the wind blowing in his or her face. Wow, well said. I like that. 
Let me ask Abraham that when you write about leprosy, you say that, quotes, without the gift of pain, we have no protection. You think this is true in our lives? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I took that phrase, the gift of pain, from uh, Paul Brand, famous hand surgeon, lep leprosy surgeon, whose uh, memoir was called the, the Gift of Pain. And, you know, um, for the longest time before before uh, Dr. Brand, people thought that, you know, the, these stubby fingers that the lepers had was because they were, you know, being chewed away by the leprosy bacillus. But Brand observed that it wasn't that. They were having these repeated micro traumas that were causing these fingers to fall off and get shorter. And uh, he was using gift of pain in that context, that without the gift of pain, without the ability to quickly withdraw our hands from noxious stimuli, we'd be left with little stubs. Uh, but I think that, you know, in a larger, you know, more metaphysical sense, pain is what shapes us. You know, we are, we are, we are basically formed by the hardships that we've learned to endure. Uh, as you know, in Silicon Valley, it's almost a mantra, you know, it's like fail, fail quick, fail big, so that you can succeed. So I think that's another way of saying pretty much the same thing, that you know, pain is what shapes us. Pain is what takes us away from things that are not going to work and towards things that work. I wondered whether some of the interpretation is that the way that we protect ourselves is out of fear, out of threat, out of perceived um, discomfort, rather than being driven by the positive and the pursuit. And um, I think it's an interesting view of the world, probably accurate for most around the globe. I wonder a little bit about how that impacts our nation. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think most of us work to avoid pain rather than to consciously seek out what we should be doing. We do things to avoid the consequences of not doing them rather than because they're important. You know? What are you working on next? <laughs> yeah, I love that question because uh, my immediate gut response is to say, give me a break. I just spent, you know, 10 years or more on this one. But to be quite honest, I'm not really not working on anything. I had the feeling after my last novel, which I also have now, that I'm all, you know, that I put everything I know into this book. There's nothing left in the tank. I hope I feel differently, but um, one of the blessings of having the job that I have is that I, um, you know, I don't really have to look to the writing to pay the bills, thank God. You know, so I can write when I am finally feel like I'm ready to write uh, rather than have to produce something because I have to produce something, so... That may be a curse, but right now I'm not. I'm really not bursting with ideas. I'm just enjoying the moment, if I may. A final question, Abraham. Across 700 brilliantly written pages, the rejected become the saviors. Tragedy leads to love. Destiny and chance dance with each other again and again. How much control do you believe we have as individuals in our personal lives? You know, I think we have a great deal of control but you know we don't have great control over our bodies beyond the usual preventive sort of thing we don't have great control on the societies we live in so you know i think it's the it's the moment of understanding for more for adolescents and uh, young adults that that you know life can be very 
uh, arbitrary. The world can be very cruel, and that you know the young are often taken away cruelly from us. Um, and still, one has to go on. You know, still one has to go on. So, I think that um, to me, a book like this is to hopefully again. I never write with a with an agenda, but to me, when I finish living with these characters, I come away wanting to make sure that those I love, I know that I love them. Uh, those who are my community and who shape me, that I keep them in my fold, that I don't stray too far from them. You know, and that I'm always aware that this moment, this very moment, you and I talking, is the only moment we have for this moment. So uh, it would be such a waste to live my life excessively in the past or in in the future. Uh, what we have is the now, and I think the blessing, uh, Robbie, for you and I to be the age we are, is that I think we, we know it more than we did when we were much, much younger. It is so wonderful, Abraham, to have you on the show. I've said it before when you spoke in front of a many thousand audience. Hearing you talk is like walking in hallowed ground. Your book is remarkable. I hope every American, people around the globe will all read it. It's an inspiration. It is engaging. Once I warn them, once they open and read the first part, they won't be able to stop. They'll stop doing everything else in their life so that they can finish to the end, and then they'll be regretful that book has ended because they want to know more and more and none of them will be able to wait for your next book. Don't make it 10 years, Abraham. Write again. You're an amazing author. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Robbie. Thank you so much. And when you say hallowed ground, you know, coming from you, you had a lot to do with, with my becoming who I am now and the confidence that I got. A lot of that came from being around some of the things that you pulled me into. So I'm very grateful for that. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Core. Have a great day.